Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. The boxers have been given their instructions. The seconds are out. The crowd is ready for another edition of Shoulder Roll Virtual Boxing with your presenter, the boxing historian, Greg Rashid. Well, I want to say swatty cup to everyone out there. This is Greg Rashid, your presenter, with another edition of the Shoulder Roll Virtual Boxing Podcast. And yes, uh, if you're new to the program, yes, I am in Bangkok, Thailand. You may hear some pounding in the background because I out here outside and um got some folks working on a building over here so but people always love the ambiance they love to hear the sounds of bangkok but i hope everyone's doing well i want to thank everyone who has tuned into the program got so many folks all over the world i want to say a special hi to the folks in morocco who are tuning in and but there's so many folks all over the world and i always got to say hi to those folks who listen every sunday afternoon at 3 p.m mountain time on KUHS Denver.com in Colorado, created by the one and only, the legendary king of media himself, Henry Archuleta. And just so happy to be on that station and just, you know, been on there for a number of years and just happy to be on the air, you know, and just enjoying life and all. And I'm just happy to have this show. And, you know, like I've said in the past with this show, we talk about boxing on here, but it's my show. And I will have other subjects on here from time to time. And those of you who have been following me for years, who have been following me on my various iterations of various sports shows and news shows, know I love black history, in particular Negro League baseball history. And I'm just honored today to have on the program Philip Lee, who wrote a superb book called Black Stats Matter. And we're going to, and it's on McFarland Press. And I'm going to bring up the interview right now, and we're going to get right to it. And just so happy. And might have some mic issues with the with the show. We're still working on getting this thing together. But right now, let's hear this interview I did with Philip Lee on his great book, Black Stats Matter. And I am so honored today to have on the program an author that has written a superb book that has been as much needed. And I've been wanting to get this book in the good people at McFarland Publication. Grace gracious enough to send me this book on Kindle. And what I'm talking about is the book is uh, Black Stats Matter, Integrating Negro League Numbers into Major League Records. And the author is Philip Lee. And first of all, this is the first time, probably the first interview I've done over here in Thailand while I'm interviewing someone in Europe. Because everyone I've been interviewing is usually over here in Thailand or usually in the U.S. So this is a first one. But we have, I found out that Phil and I have a lot in common that we'll get to later on. But I just am so happy to have Philip on here and just thankful that he's going to talk about the book. And how are you doing, Philip? How are you doing? Doing really well, Greg, and, and thanks very much for honoring me with a place on your show. Oh, I'm just, it's an honor to have you on here. I just want to get to the uh, 
root of the book of um, I want you know I want you to uh, tell my listeners how you got involved in like discovering and learning about Negro Negro League baseball because it's a story you know when I read the book I said God it's actually same thing that happened to me in a sense but talk a little bit about that in particular uh, your discovery of what we call and savor the Big Mac. So talk, talk a little bit about how you got into it. Well, I grew up in a town in the United States and went to a school in the U.S. that happened to be almost 100% white. And my teachers taught us literally nothing about black history, right. absolutely nothing. No black writers, no black artists, no black historical figures. Uh, there was a, I think there was a passing reference to Martin Luther King one day in a class, you know, sort of a, sort of a sop and that was it. And I was fortunate in the sense that my school had a librarian who made sure that the school library was stocked every year with the 100 books that the American Literary Association said were the most banned in American schools. Oh. And a lot of those books were by authors of the Harlem Renaissance. And so I got absorbed in Langston Hughes' poetry. Um, I got absorbed in Cain by Gene Toomer. Uh, I got absorbed in Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. And especially once I discovered Richard Wright, he was just perfectly tuned to my teenage brain. And uh, Native Son just swept me away. Oh, yeah. And it opened my eyes to the fact that there was a lot of culture that my school had filtered out uh, of its curriculum that was absolutely critical to uh, the American uh zeitgeist to the holistic american experience that's part of what made america what it was and is today and i started searching actively for uh information about hidden parts of the culture and i discovered a man named larry doby who most of your listeners will recognize as the man who integrated the american league Right. 11 weeks after Jackie Robinson integrated the National League, it's important to realize that those were separate leagues. They had a separate set of fans. So Doby was every bit as much of a pioneer as Robinson was. And I read uh, in my local library that Doby had homered in his final Negro Leagues at bat on the 4th of July. And I said, Negro Leagues? What's this all about? <laughs> And at that time, there was very, very little information. Uh, we're talking the 80s here. There was very little information available on the Negro Leagues. Um, Robert Peterson, who is really the, the father of modern Negro Leagues research, mentioned in his first book that when he started his research, there was one thin manila folder at the Baseball Hall of Fame marked Negro. And that was their total information on the Negro Leagues. And as he put it, uh, in the 
in in the center of baseball research, half of baseball history was missing. Yeah. And I so say, I started digging and mm -hmm. I, I want to say one thing, Phil. Um you're mentioning the book that got me started on Negro uh, baseball. You know, only the you know, only the ball was white by Peterson. And the funny thing is, sure, is I'm listening to read, you know, read the book, but then listening to you now. I'm gonna tell you this that I'm, you know, you're coming up in the 80s. I came up in the 60s. I'm in Washington D.C., predominantly black community, black city. You know, in our school, in elementary school, in junior high and, and eventually high school, it kind of changed in the 70s, but we didn't have any black history, anything as far as in our curriculum. Same thing that you went through, I went through, but a different way because I'm in a black school, 99.9% .9 black, and we didn't have the same thing. I discovered books like Langston Hughes and all by the time I think late junior high, like in the eighth grade. But prior to that, we didn't have that. The only time we had anything about black history in elementary schools was George Washington Carver, slavery, maybe a tiny bit about Frederick Douglass. Martin Luther King, ironically, Martin Luther King was coming to Washington, D.C., obviously, for protests, to speak. You know, the I Have a Dream speech at uh, the March on Washington in August of 1963. Ironically, in our school, there was no mention of him at all. And he's in our city. So I, you know, I want people to understand, they listen to this, that, you know, Phil being white, I'm being black, we had the same experience in a different way, but it was the same thing. The lack of just the information out there about black history. And it's still it's still it's like that. It's still the same way even in the 21st century. And that's why I'm so happy to have you on Phil to talk about your book, Black Stats Matter. Now going a little bit more about you know your background as far as how you you know what eventually led you to write this book. Three years in education. Uh, I worked with uh, children with special needs. And uh, during that time, I moved from the US to the UK, but I continued the same employment. And I did some additional schooling and uh, started to uh, do some uh, fairly serious writing. Uh, I wrote a, a strategy guide to a game called Catan. And the only reason I wrote it was to teach myself how to write a book. <laughs> uh, now, McFarland's going to publish that uh, coming up this year, which really? was a, a great surprise to me. That was just a bonus. Wow. Yeah, that was just a bonus for me to get that published. But in about 2018, I figured that I had assembled enough information and evidence to conclude that the Negro Leagues should be regarded as major leagues. And of course, about that same time, Todd Peterson was working on his project titled The Negro Leagues Are Major Leagues. Right. And I started I assembling the research for Black Stats Matter. Right. Yeah. Sure. And I and I I started to assemble the research for Black Stats Matter. 
And then in December 2020, to my surprise and my delight, Major League Baseball announced that seven Negro Leagues were going to be accepted as Major Leagues. And I almost abandoned the book until I saw the press reaction, the backlash to that announcement. All kinds of people in the American press saying, well, they weren't really as good as the white leagues. Well, they weren't really that organized. They didn't play in the big stadiums, which is complete nonsense. Um, They didn't have the quality players, you know, tell that to Willie Mays and Hank Aaron and Ernie Banks. Um, And uh, uh, people were doing interviews on TV uh, saying that it was all a bunch of nonsense. And I said, this is ridiculous. And I decided that it was one thing to claim. Right. And there's one quote you have in the book that really uh, threw me off because you uh, talk a little bit about what uh, Howard Bryant was a esteemed black author, sports writer, what he said that really surprised me. Is that the, the quote about baseball carrying the sullied stain of segregation? Right. Because Howard Bryant writes for ESPN. I, I think I recall that quote. Yeah. Um, the, uh, there was a certain, re- there are a lot, people gave all sorts of reasons for uh wanting to keep the Negro Leagues separate, or shall we say, but equal. And uh, one of the reasons was that if we combine the statistics, somehow the fact of baseball segregation would be lost. And I thought to myself, we're living in the age of Colin Kaepernick. We're living in the age of George Floyd. There's no way that our society and our culture is going to forget that uh, baseball was segregated like almost every other American institution. And maybe uh, American society could use another book talking about how that happened. Um, Talking about how how and why baseball became segregated and when baseball became integrated, how slow that was. And how it took, I mean, Jackie Robinson broke into the uh, minor leagues in 1946 the Boston Red Sox didn't uh, hire their first black player until 1959. And Major League Baseball didn't accept their first black umpire crew chief until 2020. So it's not like this is ancient history. No, that's the thing. Not at all. You know, it is not ancient history. It is, you know, we have lived through this. And it still goes on. You know, it's still going on. You know, still folks out there who believe that. And I want to ask you this, by the way, too. Um, something I've noticed, and I want you to comment on this, but kind of allude to it in the book. But when I've been doing my research, uh, looking at like um, baseball history uh, three in the past two years, in particular, I was looking at um, something about Cleveland. I think I was actually looking up actually for Larry Dolby, and I notice that now when you look for the Cleveland baseball team when it was called the Cleveland Indians it's called in the history books the Cleveland Guardians and the same thing is true I looked up uh, the Washington uh, Commanders and you see history saying that they were called the Commanders in the 30s 40s and 60s going up until you know the 2000 and 2020s and I'm saying you know, you're 
assuming that there was no racism and segregation or anything. And what do you think about that? That a lot of history books, other sports history books, are just retroactively changing the name and not showing the true names of these teams to let people understand that yes, these were racist names of these teams. And we have to show what was going on at that time. And to have that just retroactively changed and, and acting like it never happened, I just don't like that. What, what do you think about that? Orwellian, isn't it? It's yeah. throwing history down the memory <laughs> hole, as That's George right. would have said. And uh, yeah, now you'll, because you've read my book, you'll know that I talk about Cleveland quite a bit. Right. And I refuse to print their team name in my book, but I also address that fact in the book. Right. And at the end of the book, I've got a little uh, open letter to Atlanta's ownership and management because I personally find their team name offensive as well. Oh God! And uh, just for the benefit of your, just the bit for the benefit of your listeners, I'll read my my uh, open letter because it's not very long. Dear Atlanta ownership and management, why don't you rebrand your team as the Grays or the Americans? The first name symbolically honors the greatness of the Negro Leagues. The second pays homage to the people you have till now so casually demeaned. I, I couldn't be in closer agreement with you. History is history. As much as certain folks uh, like Ron DeSantis might like to flush that history away, or certain folks like Nikki Haley might like to deny the true causes of the Civil War, uh, the facts are the facts, and we can't let them be flushed down the memory hole. No, we can't. We can try to fix them now, but we have to remember what they were then. What has been the reaction to the uh, Braves from the Braves organization, the Atlanta organization, about your letter? Have they seen it? Anyone from that organization seen it? They have. I haven't heard back. I've had one or two positive comments on it from people who have read the book. Okay. You know, I know that they, you know, they're aware. They shouldn't wear, and they should be known, you know, and it should be known. And I'm hoping that people will listen to this program. Because I've been like a proponent of getting rid of all these just racist nicknames forever on my shows and in speeches and all. And I hope listeners out there will write some of the emails, letters to the, you know, to the Atlanta organization, to the Kansas City organization, and the Chiefs, the Super Bowl champions. To the Chicago hockey team, the Blackhawks, because these are offensive names. You know, you can pull out someone, a Native American, who says they agree with it, but when you really talk to a lot of Native Americans, they'll tell you they don't, you know, they're offended by that. So hopefully that, you know, you know, you may have started a letter writing campaign to get these names just off these teams. But to keep the history as far as knowing where these names came from and where the names of these teams came from, and to let people know not to whitewash the history, but to show what it really is. And that's why your book, Black, you know, Black Staff the Matter, is really important, what you're doing in there. And I want you to talk about, too, now, um, you have a lot of examples in the book of baseball. MLB, Major League Baseball, 
and examples of what was happening in certain games. And these incidents were kept in the record books and are considered part of Major League Baseball. Things that happened at the turn of the 20th century prior to that, stats that shouldn't really be in there because of silly things that happened on the field. This talk, let's give a couple examples of those. Well, absolutely. Um, you've got, uh, I think for me, uh, the best example is early home runs. Right. Now you've got all, all sorts of things that are wrong with early baseball. Uh, for example, the fact that sometimes uh, plays used to be held in major league parks and instead of uh, tearing the stage down uh, during a game, they would make the fielders play on top of the theater stage. And there's one documented case in which uh, the team had their fielders wear rubber-soled shoes because they thought it would rain, and the rain was going to make the stage slippery. But wow. the numbers from that game are counted as Major League records. And at the same time, baseball was unwilling to count the Negro League games in the Major League canon. But let's talk about, let's talk about a couple of um, early home runs. In 1884, a chap named Tom O'Brien uh, hit a ball. It buried itself into a heap of dirt that had been left on the field, and the umpire called it a home run. Uh, in 1886, Willie Wolf hit a ball, and Abner Powell tried to retrieve it, and a dog that was loose on the field chased him away, and that was called a home run. Okay. Um, in 1892, Tom, Tom Brown hit a ball, and Cap Anson let it go by because he was being chased by a horse. And that was counted as a home run. Uh, in 1897, Jack Doyle hit a ball and it bounced up the rungs of a ladder that had been left leaning against the outfield wall and bounced over. And they called that a home run. Uh, in 1891, Cap Anson hit one and Ed Delahanty went after it. And somebody had left the door of a storage should open the field. He got physically stuck in the door, and they counted that as a home run. Now, you, you just have quite now these same made. official historians. Yeah, we just brought up a name that I want you to talk a little bit about, because at, at the end of the book, you mentioned what should be done with this guy, but Cap Anson, his role, because I know there's some people, and I have a lot of young listeners who may not under, know Cap Anson and his role in the segregation of Major League Baseball. Talk a little bit about him. First of all, it's important to understand Anson's role in baseball history. Prior to Ruth, he was the guy. Prior to the babe, he was the most popular player. He was the most accomplished player. He was the first player to reach 3,000 hits. Even today, and this is a guy who played in the 19th century, even today, he ranks fourth all time in RBI. So he was a wonderful, wonderful ball player. Unfortunately, he was also quite a corrupt human being. And there was a man named Moses Walker, commonly known in history as Fleetwood Walker. He was a brilliant ball player and he was a brilliant man. He was a man who invented mechanical devices to improve early motion picture cameras and improved U.S. Army artillery shells. So he was an inventor. He was a man who owned 
a hotel and ran that business. He was a man who founded a newspaper and did that. He was a man who wrote a book on black nationalism a decade before Marcus Garvey started talking about it in public. We're talking about a brilliant, brilliant man here. He was also a brilliant baseball player. Right. And in 1884, he managed to more or less sneak his way into the major leagues and was universally regarded as the hottest catcher around. Well, Cap Anson didn't like that. And Cap Anson started performing public demonstrations against him. And Anson, at that time, was the player manager of the Chicago White Stockings. And Anson started to refuse to bring his team on the field if uh, Fleetwood Walker was on the field. And prior to that, there had been a handful of bad incidents involving black people and white people on a baseball field, but nothing too serious. And more importantly, one of the early baseball leagues took a vote on excluding black players and the vote was, and the motion was defeated. Um, this is just prior to when Anson started acting out against Fleetwood Walker. Well, Anson was so influential and so well-regarded and so quoted in the sporting press. And his, he, was, um, he was kind of like the Deion Sanders of his day, let's say. When yeah. he did something, people talked about it. Right. And uh, his stand against Black players came to be accepted as the right thing to do. Um, curiously, the one person who was exempted from that by the sporting press was Fleetwood Walker, because every reporter who met him was overwhelmed by his intellect, by his mode of speech, by his obvious brilliance and gentlemanly conduct. So the sporting press supported Walker, but they turned with venom against every other black man who tried to play baseball at any level on in any organized league, major or minor. And eventually, in July 1887, uh, a high minor league passed a resolution saying that uh, we're not going to have any more ball player, black ball players sign the contracts. And on, and on that same day, possibly knowing of the news, Cap Adson against, against uh, held his team off the field or threatened to against Fleetwood Walker. And that was the nail in the coffin. Yeah. And in my book, I advocate that uh, if it were within my power, Anson is the one man I would kick clean out of the Hall of Fame. And I say, gaudy statistics be damned. That's right. Because this man did more damage to baseball. This man did more damage to baseball than anyone has ever done to any American sport. You look at the white heavyweight champions who ducked fighting their black opponents. Basically, everyone in a certain era, other than Rocky Marciano, refused to fight the great black fighters. Uh, uh, Marciano was the one exception to that. Yeah. Um, but these were yeah. men. These were men who were. These were men who were turning down single opponents. Anson excluded three generations of black ball players from the playing fields. And because Major League Baseball is so hung up on statistics, he also excluded three generations of black ball players from the Major League record books. 
So you look at these, these tremendous numbers piled up by a Babe Ruth or a Cy Young, and I'm not knocking these people. They were doing the best they could against the best competition around, and there's also some good evidence that if Babe Ruth had been allowed to manage, he would have stocked his team with black players. He was of the same opinion that I am today, which is that Satchel Paige was the greatest pitcher who ever lived. Right. Okay? So I'm not knocking them. But their huge numbers were compiled in all white leagues with yeah. no black opposition whatsoever. And they're still regarded as the all-time record today. Yeah. And, and way, I guess I question the fairness of that. Yeah. And by the way, uh, listeners, are just tuning in, I'm talking to Bill Lee, author of the great book, I say that with all sincerity, Black Sex Matters on the Farland Press. Now, Phil, I want to ask you, um, what is worse? Because almost like every day, someone will talk about online about, well, we can't put these steroid guys in the Hall of Fame because, you know, they'll mess up the stats. What is worse? Putting a Barry Bonds in or leaving Cap Anson in? Who did the worst? To destroy, basically destroy not only just say baseball, but all the sports and probably the whole, given his uh, enormous popularity, just helped Jim Crow during that period. What was worse? Putting some guys in who are on steroids or keeping Cap Anson in there? By far, because from 1884, September 1884, through, I believe it was June 1947, no black man set foot on a Major League Baseball field. And that's absurd. Now, it's true that the allegations in Barry, against Barry Bonds, and I happen to believe those, because I think the book Game of Shadows pretty much nails that down, um, did some damage to baseball, but baseball's thriving today. Shohei Otani just got a contract for $700 million. He didn't destroy baseball. He didn't uh, exclude any particular players from the game. He succeeded in excluding himself from the Hall of Fame. But he didn't exclude multiple generations of players from baseball like Cap Anson did. So to me, um, I personally would regard Anson's as much, much the worst sin. It was devastating. I mean, what he did was just devastating. And for some of my listeners out there who have that, you don't know a lot, this is the first time you're hearing about Cap Anson. Google his name, look him up, look up what, you know, what he actually did. Because Bill is just tough. He's just tough. Or better still. Go ahead. Better still read the chapter in my book. Yeah, well, <laughs> I will say that too. Yeah, get the book. Get the book, you know. I urge you to get it. Now, you know, I could talk to you all day about this book, but one thing, a number of things in this book, but one thing that really, you talk about one of the heroes that I never actually saw in person, but I really admired this guy. Even have a, his baseball, one of his baseball cards here with me in Thailand. And you bring up the fact that there's a strong case for him being in the hall, Baseball Hall of Fame. And I had never thought about it, but after reading the book, and just pondering what you wrote, I agree that you're right. And who I'm talking about is Luke Easter. And talk a little bit about Luke Easter, because I know a number of people listening to this program 
probably don't know Luke Easter unless they were a Cleveland baseball fan. Luke, or his his name was actually Lush. That's right. And everybody called him Big Luke because he was an enormous man. For any of you who have seen pictures of Willie Stargell, um, uh, uh, Bill James, uh, Willie Stargell is having shoulders like Condor's wings. Um, Easter was bigger than Willie Stargell. And he had basically had muscles growing on his muscles. Yeah. And starting in 1935, he played with a team, an independent team, called the St. Louis Titanium Giants. And he played with them through 1941. And those statistics he put up there are lost. But the sports writers who covered him were calling him the Negro Babe Ruth. Because his teammates used to get into arguments about which of his home runs he'd hit the farthest. World War II came along. He lost four years out of his career to World War II. Uh, plus, he had a terrible, terrible injury in a car accident that uh, wrecked his knee. Now, that would have finished most people and should have finished him. Most players can't come back from missing four years out of their prime of their career. When, uh, but he did come back. He played a couple years for the Homestead Grays, leading the Negro League in uh, home runs once. <clears throat> then he came to the major leagues, uh, had three fantastic seasons with Cleveland, averaging more than 100 RBI a year. But their manager, Al Lopez, had gotten word that Easter was dating a white woman. This is according to oral testimony by Larry Doby that I uncovered during our research for my book and Lopez didn't like it and Cleve, uh, Easter uh, partway into the 53 season was hitting 303 but he, he got his uh, foot snapped by a fastball and that was all the excuse Lopez needed he looked at Easter he said the guy is old the guy is hurt the guy's doing things that I don't appreciate racially he's gone and they sent him down to the minors and over more than a decade that followed, he won six different home run championships in various minor leagues. He was playing, he, he was the most popular player in the history of the Buffalo Bisons. Um, people had never seen anything like his power stroke. He hit balls as far as Babe Ruth or Mickey Mantle or Josh Gibson. Uh, and he, when the Buffalo was playing at a particularly cavernous stadium called uh, Offerman, and if you think of the uh, the monster in Boston, the huge, huge wall, they had an even larger structure, an enormous center field scoreboard, and Easter was the only man to hit a ball clean over that scoreboard, and it went multiple blocks through the city and hit a house. And the owner of the house told Sports Illustrated, I thought for sure someone had dropped an atom bomb on the roof. <laughs> and e everywhere he went, uh, these minor league teams broke their attendance records because nobody could believe the way he could mash the ball. And he used to say to his wife, I'm not worried. Someone needs a good hitter. But as was very, very typical 
of the black players who got premature demotions in those days. He never got the call to come back up. And my personal estimate is that he would have hit, and I talk about this in the book, that he would have hit um, 500 to 550 home runs in the majors had he stayed up. Uh, and that if he'd been healthy, which was always a challenge for him, he probably would have broken Ruth's career home run record. And I have pages of quotes in the book from his contemporaries saying things like, he put the fear of God in us pitchers. Because he wasn't lifting the ball like a Ruth. He was hitting line drives that were entering the stands 500 feet away. He's probably, in my estimation, the strongest man ever to play Major League Baseball. And yes, I think that I think he's, and yeah, he's, you know, I'm comparing him to guys like Jimmy Fox. So I don't make that statement lightly. But I do think he was probably the strongest man ever to play Major League Baseball. And because so many of his early statistics are lost, and because he was demoted from the Major League so so quickly when he got hurt, um, his case is difficult to document. So I devote a chapter in the book to assembling what I regard as a pretty solid case for Luke Easter to go to the Hall of Fame. Well, you do a superb job with that. I really, I mean, I hope someone, you know, when they read your book or hear this interview, there'll be some folks out there, statisticians and all, who will agree with you and work on this because really, this is a guy that really deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. And I had never, until I read your book, I never looked at him that way. I just looked at him as a great player who didn't get a chance. I not looked at him as someone who deserved to be in the Hall of Fame. But yeah, he should be in there. It's amazing. You know, I've looked at some of the, over the years, uh, prior to reading your book, just some of the uh, newspaper articles about him when he was in the minors. And many of them would have pictures of where his balls, had, where he was hitting home runs and having an arrow when they used to do the thing with they would have the arrow pointing to a part of the stadium where balls would hit, were hit. And he was hitting like balls 480, 490, 500 some feet. And he was incredible. And I'm just glad that you put that in the book, Black Staff Matter, that he should be in the Hall of Fame. He definitely deserves to be in there. And I have to say this too. This book, and I know the Hall of Fame has a library, I hope, and maybe it's already there, I hope this book is in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Have you got, has anyone gotten in uh, touch with you about putting it in, in their library? Not particularly that, but I will say this. Um, uh, I've gotten some really good feedback on the book from other baseball professionals. And on the strength of the book, I was invited to join the Special Negro Leagues and Teams Committee of the Society of American Baseball for American Baseball Research, uh, SABER, which is oh, where yeah. the word sabermetrics right. comes from, the study right. of baseball statistics. Right. And I am, we are meeting right now. Uh, I am working seven days a week to uh, doc. My particular subcommittee is working on the teams and leagues that performed after 1948, which is the currently accepted cutoff for when the Negro Leagues are no longer considered major leagues. And we are working to reassemble the rosters, recompile the statistics. Oh, man. Uh, we have some of the best 
we have some of the best baseball minds uh, in the United States on this committee. And on the strength of the book, I was deeply honored to be asked to join. And uh, I, I'm not going to say when we're going to announce the results. We have a target date, but we're taking this responsibility very, very seriously. Oh, and so some of these you. records are oh, hard to they're hard to assemble. They're, some of these records are lost in the back pages and archives of newspapers that have been out of print for decades, for example. And so uh, uh, sometime this year, uh, we hope to make an announcement that additional teams and leagues, all black teams and leagues, will henceforth be regarded as major leagues. And one of the consequences that I hope will arise from that is uh, right now, uh, Josh Gibson is regarded as having too few at-bats to qualify for all-time league leaderships in Major League Baseball. Uh, for example, Babe Ruth, is the all-time slugging leader in baseball at 690, which is a mind-boggling figure. Josh Gibson was at 706. And he yeah. had that way against everyone. When he got the opportunity to play against white players or complete major league teams, he was mashing the ball exactly the same way. And people like Walter Johnson and Carl, Carl Hubble were telling people, this is the best catcher in the world. But of course, segregation kept him out of the major leagues. Well, right now, the, the rules established by Major League Baseball say you got to have 3,000 at-bats to qualify as, as an all-time leader. Gibson has less than that. And I'm hoping that this project pushes him over 3,000. And if it doesn't, I'm hoping that the rule will be changed. Yeah. And there's, there's historical precedent for that. There's historical precedent for changing that rule because... In 1971, well, actually, the process started in 1969 when uh, the Hall of Fame started talking about admitting Negro League players. And a lot of people like Bowie Kuhn were saying things like, well, we can't admit them because they don't meet the rules. They didn't serve major 10 years in Major League Baseball. They can't be in the Hall of Fame. And they changed that rule because the rule was so obviously unjust. Yeah. So my position is, if systemic racism and systemic racism only kept an obvious inner circle Hall of Famer like Josh Gibson from reaching 3,000 at-bats, then change the rule. It's been done before, and it should be done again. Totally agree. That, that is something. I could, you know, Phil, I could talk to you all day about this book. It is incredible. One thing I want to ask you, what do you, you know, you kind of, mentioned this in the whole interview, but what is the one thing you want people, readers, to get out of your book and they get it? I suppose, well, the purport of the book, the uh, the thesis, is that the uh, Negro League stats are 100% equivalent to Major League stats. You can read the lines and trust them exactly the same way and that a a new pantheon of all-time greats should be assembled that includes these these brilliant brilliant negro leagues players like a josh gibson like a satchel page like a pop lloyd um, like a judd wilson 
like a, a bullet Rogan players that aren't really that well known to the average baseball fan who revere people like Babe Ruth and Ted Williams. These black stars should be on the same page of history. If there's a specific fact that I'd like people to take away, it's how hard Major League Baseball tried to stop the integration of the major leagues and how slow that integration process was. And in fact, I've got uh, a section in the book that I called Major League Baseball versus the Truth that talks about how Major League Baseball in 1951 presented falsified documents to Congress oh, yeah. to yeah. deny to deny that they had fought against the integration of baseball. And as far as I'm aware, and I did a lot of reading for this book, as far as I'm aware, that was unknown before now that major that Major League Baseball had presented false documents to Congress. That deception went unnoticed for three quarters of a century. So I wouldn't mind if that fact was known. Yeah, because I was not, I knew that McPhail and all these other guys were doing stuff. I read, alluded to that in some publications years ago, but I didn't know the fact that you bring up in the book, 51. I didn't know that. That's important. That is something that needs to be known by more, more folks. And I'm just one, and I'm encouraging the listeners to please pick up the book today, tomorrow, you can. Black Facts Matter, Integrating Negro League Numbers into Major League Records by Philip Lee with on McFarland Press. I'm just so happy to have you on here today, Phil. And I want to say one other thing, too. Uh, off the air, Phil and I were talking about our love of boxing. Which, you know, everyone knows this is a, primarily a boxing show, but I can interview whoever I want. And when it comes to Negro League Baseball, I'll put anyone on, talk about it. But Phil, you know, Phil was mentioning that his first uh, hero, sports hero, was the one and only and incomparable Muhammad Ali. We just had a, you know, wonderful conversation. I have to get you back on to talk about boxing sometime. Yeah, to get you on here to talk about that once you've done all the research and all for the committee that you're on right now that you know you can relax and come on here and just talk about um uh, some boxing you know some boxing things that we talked about off the air yeah i would be honored uh you said that you would put anybody on the air who would discuss the negro leagues i will talk about muhammad ali until the cows come home all right you know, get you on here to talk about that. And get you on when the research comes, up, uh, comes out about what the committee is looking at, what they find about the other the Negro League teams after 48. I want to have you on to talk about that. But thank you so much today. How can people reach you, Phil? They want to talk to you first. You want to talk to me further? Uh, you can send an email to, and this is all one word, blackstatsmatter at gmail.com. Say that one more time. Uh, I can also be contacted blackstatsmatter at gmail.com, all one word, lowercase. I can also be reached through my publisher, McFarland Books. And again, I want to thank uh, McFarland Books for sending me this wonderful book. And I want to thank you, Phil, for being on air and doing this show. Um, Early in the morning for you, but here, it's night here in Thailand right now. <laughs> so, 
He's getting, you know, it's late here, but, you know, just loving doing this international interviewing. Look forward to, hopefully, we'll meet you in person at some point when I get back to the United States, or maybe you'll get over here, or maybe I'll get to Britain, Britain at some point. But thank you so much, Phil. You take care. Thank you so much for, for the interview and just writing this incredible book. Thank you so much. Thank you, Greg. I really appreciate the opportunity. All right. Really enjoy talking to Phil today and reading this book. Just an incredible book, uh, Black Stats Matter. Get it on McFarland Press. And I want to thank the folks again at McFarland Press for sending the PDF of this book. Superb book. Just really good. And like I said, we're going to have Phil on again to talk about you know, the findings of the Negro League Committee, but also to talk about boxing. Got to get him on here because he, like me, he loves Muhammad Ali. And right now, to dedicate this to Phil, I'm going to play uh, Muhammad Ali singing. And I hope I don't get dinged on YouTube because anytime I put a song on lately, it seems like they just like block me. But anyway, we're going to play this song by Muhammad, Muhammad Ali produced by Sam Cooke. If you haven't heard this before, this is Stand By Me. So let's play that right now. Before we do that, we're going to do a couple of commercials here. So let's get to those and then we'll get to the song. Stand By Me by Muhammad Ali, produced by Sam Cooke. Let's hear that right now on the Shoulder Roll Virtual Boxing Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, get ready for the ultimate knockout experience brought to you by Pillow Puncher Pro, the boxing sensation that's softer than a grandma's hug. Pillow Puncher Pro, where every hit feels like a hug and every defeat is a chance for a power nap. Order now. And we'll throw in our exclusive Dreamy Corner kit for free. Pillow Puncher Pro. Because when life throws a punch, you throw a pillow. Order now and redefine the knockout experience. For those who say top and you stand, the best gifts in life are free. Gifts to grace your living room, each backed by a guarantee. Free for top value stem, an elegant polished brass chafing dish, or if something spills, a Bissell carpet sweeper, perfect for touch-up. To brighten your living room, select the beautiful Bradley table lamp, fashioned in walnut and brass. To enjoy your favorite TV shows in any room, choose an RCA portable television set. Like everything else, free for top value stem. So 
Muhammad Ali there and Stand By Me as produced by Sam Cooke. That was from 1963 on Columbia Records. And if you can find that, I'm hunting over here in Thailand trying to find that album. I know I'll get it at some point. I know I'll find it somewhere in one of these flea markets or used uh, record stores they have over here. I'll find it definitely. I mean, last just last week I found a Mom's Mabley uh, album over here, which was, you know, I never thought I'd find one of those and Thailand, but anyway, again, we're gonna get ready to get out of here right now. I hope you enjoyed the show. And by the way, on future, if you want to be a promoter of upcoming boxing events we have on here, just go to uh, my Facebook site, Gregory Rashid. Uh, go to Nourished by History, my YouTube channel. You can go to Sports History Channel that Sports History Network dot com. Wherever you hear the program, just leave a note, as a lot of people do. And you can be a promoter. Go to my um, Patreon site. Look for Nourished by History. Show the role virtual boxing. And you can contribute a dollar a month. Something like that. Anything you can do to help the program. Because we need to keep these lights on. We need to get a new mic. We need a little bit of everything. But we depend on you out there. Yes, you. Yes, you listening right now to support the program. So do that if you can. Also, buy me a coffee. Go on there, look for Nourished by History, then look for Shoulder Roll Boxing, Virtual Boxing Podcast, and, you know, just send whatever you can to support the program. Keep us going. Keep us going. And I just want to thank Phil for being on today. Get that book, 
Black Stats Matter on McFarland Press by Philip Lee. And he's going to be on here again talking about boxing, talking about his the study they're doing in the Negro League Committee with Sabre, what they're doing with that. And also, um, I'm going to put some programs. He wants to promote a, pro, a boxing match. So we're going to have on a future program, Mike Tyson versus Muhammad Ali. And I'm going to do also Floyd Patterson versus Rocky Marciano. What if? But anyway, this is Greg Rashid. Go in love and go in peace. Help someone along the way, wherever you are. And remember, each day you get up, get up, look in that mirror, and hug yourself. Just say, I love myself. And if you're sight impaired, and you get up, just hug yourself and just say, I love myself. Because if you can't love yourself, you can't do anything. You can't help anyone. You can't do anything. So get up and just say that you love yourself. Because we're all in this together, wherever you are, whatever country you're in, be it here in Thailand, be it in the U.S., be it in Britain, be it in uh, Siberia, wherever you are in this world. Do what you can to help your community out and just bring, bring positive vibrations to that community. But again, this is Greg Rashid. Go in love and go in peace. We'll see you next time on the Show the Roll Virtual Boxing Podcast. Take care out there. for tuning in. See you next time.